All right, you guys can turn to Genesis 11. Genesis 11, that's where we'll be this morning. So last Sunday, I got kind of personal. I told you how I feel on Sunday afternoons after I preach. So this morning, I thought I would tell you how I feel on Saturday afternoons before I preach. Saturday, what is my general emotional state on Saturday? Well, well, Saturday afternoons, by and large, if I'm going to preach, then Saturday afternoons, I feel unworthy. That's my basic word for Saturdays, unworthy. Because Saturday is when I've, I've finished all of my study and I've crafted a sermon and I sit down and it's time to write the application. That part at the end of the sermon where I tell you how to take God's truth and apply it to your lives, I write the application and invariably that's when conviction sets in because I'm telling you what to do and then I look at myself. And I see all my sin, and I see all my temptations, I see all my struggles, all kinds of stuff that you don't see, at least I, I kind of hope you, you don't see it. I, I see all this stuff in me, and that's when conviction sets in, and I feel unqualified. How can I get up here and presume to tell you what to do, how to apply God's word to your life when I'm struggling to apply it to my own? Every Saturday, it's a battle with feelings of unworthiness. Have any of you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt unworthy or unqualified to know God or serve God? Maybe you come to church or, or you come to a Bible study or you show up at breakaway and you feel like you are the one person who doesn't belong there. Because you look around and you see all these other godly men and women, and then you look at your own life. You see all the stuff that no one else sees, all your hang-ups, all your struggles, your temptations, your sins. You see all that stuff, and it makes you feel incredibly unworthy, unqualified to be known by God, loved by God, or used by God. What do we do with those feelings of unworthiness? When you feel unqualified, when you feel unworthy of God's love, unworthy of, of knowing or serving God, what do you do with that feeling? Well, you look at the life of a man named Abraham. That's what we're going to begin to do this morning. We're going to look at a man named Abraham who knew exactly what it was like to feel unworthy. Abraham was an incredibly unworthy man whom God chose, God took, God transformed, and God made into the second most important person in your Bible. You may not realize that about this guy named Abraham. He is the second most important character anywhere in Scripture. Only Jesus trumps Abe. And actually, you can't really understand the life of Jesus if you don't know Abraham. Because Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, it is all built upon the story of Abraham. It all begins with Abraham. 13 years ago, I was an intern here at Grace. And one day, I was working at a desk in front of the college ministry offices. And this young, attractive, tall, brown-haired girl walks up to drop off her, her application for a summer missions trip. And we had a really short conversation, nothing profound, nothing really significant. Little did I realize that was the beginning of my relationship with my wife. So a relationship that totally transformed me. Second most important relationship in my life began with that short little conversation, that turning point. 
Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning, a turning point in the Bible. The moment when everything changes because of a, of a short conversation between God and a man named Abraham, who we'll meet for the first time today. We'll actually be looking at Abraham for the next six sermons, because this guy is incredibly important. The rest of your Bible is built on this conversation we'll look at today between God and Abraham. Abraham's story is the story of the Bible. It is a story that begins with a divided planet. That's where we left off last week. So let's just review for a second. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11, starting actually in verse 6. Let's start in verse 6. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do, building this city and tower. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. There is no evil that they cannot commit now that they are united together. So, verse 7, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. So when humanity is able to unite together, we unite in rebellion. That's what Babel was about, rebelling against God. And so in grace, God steps down and divides up the human race to to restrain our ability to sin. So God divides humanity into distinct nations, peoples, languages, families, and then God chooses one family. That's where our story really begins today. God chooses one family. Let's let's meet this chosen family starting in verse 26. Begins with a man named Terah. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. That's a lot of names. As we read through that, you're probably getting a little confused. Names we're not familiar with. How are all these people related? What's going on here? Okay, two most important people in what we just read are the guy named Abram. That is Abraham. God will change his name. So we'll just call him Abraham. Uh, And his wife named Sarai, that is Sarah. God will change her name also. So Abraham and Sarah. And this is what their family looked like. In chapter 11, it goes all the way back to Noah and his son Shem. Many generations pass, and then we get to Terah. Terah has three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran has a son named Lot. Abram has two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob has 12 sons who become the nation of Israel. So God chooses a family. It begins with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the chosen family of the book of Genesis. These men, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, these are the fathers of Israel. They're they're the patriarchs, and they're what the rest of the book of Genesis is about. So this is the chosen family, and God tells us that that this chosen family comes from a place called Ur, a, a city called Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, that might seem like just a little piece of trivia to you, but in the stories of the Bible, geography always matters. 
You can learn a lot about a person from where they come from. And fortunately, we know a lot about the city of Ur. It was located in modern-day Iraq, down on the Euphrates. You can actually go visit it today. It was a pretty big city, so there's a lot of it left. These are the ruins of Ur. It was a city of about 380,000 in Abraham's day. Now, that's kind of mid-sized city in the modern world. That was a metropolis in the ancient world, one of the biggest cities in the world when Abraham was alive. Huge city, very prosperous. It was a center of industry and art. It was kind of like the New York City of the ancient world. It's a really prosperous, advanced city. There's just one problem with Ur. It was built around idolatry. That tower that they've rebuilt in the middle is is the center of the city. It's a ziggurat that was built to the worship of the god of the moon. So so they worshiped the moon in Ur. The whole city was built around the worship of, of the moon as an idolatrous god. So Ur was a very pagan but very prosperous city. That's where this chosen family comes from. So they're they're from a pagan, prosperous city, but they have a problem. This chosen family has a really serious problem. God tells us about it in verse 30. You may not have noticed it. Sarai was barren. She had no child. At this point in the story, Abraham is 75. Sarah is 65. They are both well past childbearing age. Now, in in our day and age, infertility is a really hard thing. But in the ancient world, it was far worse. You see, in the ancient world, your whole life revolved around having children, especially sons, who would carry on your name and would take care of you in your old age, because in the ancient world, there was no social security, there was no insurance, there were no retirement funds. Your significance and security were wrapped up in your ability to have sons, And so in Israel and in all ancient cultures, they actually believed that if you were infertile, it was a curse from God himself. So this family, this chosen family has a a devastating problem. If that problem is not fixed, life will not work for them. That actually becomes a major plot in Abraham's life. So God chooses this family, and then he shows up, and he gives to this family a challenging command. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. God gives a command that comes in four parts. Go forth from your country. In other words, leave the nation that you are a citizen of. Leave the people who speak your language. Leave your land and your house behind. Leave everything you know, leave your relatives, that's part two of the command, leave your extended family, part three of the command, leave your father's house, your immediate family, and then part four of the command, go to the land which I will show you. Now notice God doesn't tell him the destination, does he? He says, go somewhere, I'll tell you when you get there. Isn't that just like God? He tells us to go, but doesn't tell us where the destination is, he just tells us the next step. Take the next step. Walk with me in faith. I'll show you step by step. So Abraham is 75 years old. He's wealthy. He has settled down. He has built a life for himself in Ur. That's the only city he's ever known. And yet God calls him to to leave everything he knows and everyone he knows and get up and go somewhere. Now that would be incredibly hard for any of us to do, but it would have been far harder for Abraham 
You see, in the ancient world, when you left your country and your family to go somewhere else and be a foreigner somewhere else, you never came back. Travel was incredibly hard in the ancient world. It was dangerous. It was slow. You're just walking on your feet, so it's as as fast as you can walk. It was incredibly expensive. There were no hotels. There were no roads. If you left, you didn't come back. Abe never comes back. He never gets to visit his family again. He never gets to come home again. Can you imagine that kind of call upon your life? An incredibly difficult command that God gives to this family. But God follows the hard command with a gracious promise. A gracious promise. That's verses two and three. Look with me at verses two and three. God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This promise, these seven lines of promise, we can summarize here what God promises to Abraham with three key words. Three key words here of what God promises Abraham. First, land. Go to the land I will show you and I'll make you a nation. What, what land is God giving to Abraham? Well, Abe doesn't know yet. He's not going to know for sure till chapter 15. Look at chapter 15. End of the chapter, verse 18 God gets around to specifying the land that he's giving to Abraham and to his descendants. Chapter 15, verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Those are very specific boundaries. We can map them. This is the land that God promised to Abraham. It's the the eastern tributaries of the Nile to the uh, southwest. It's the Euphrates on the northeast. That is what we call the promised land. That land is very significant in the Bible. That is the land of Eden in chapter 2. That's God's land. And then at the end of the Bible, Revelation, when Jesus comes back to rule over the earth, he rules from that land, same boundaries. That is the land of God. It's the land at the center of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. That is the land that God promises to Abraham and to his descendants. Okay, so the promise begins with land. Second part of the promise, seed. That is descendants. God promises to to make Abraham into a nation. That implies he's got to have descendants. So God is promising that this childless man will not only become a dad, but he will have so many descendants that they will make a whole nation. You may not realize it, but this is the birth of the nation of Israel. This is where the Jews come from. This promise right here. That Abraham will have descendants that turn into a nation. That is the Jews. That is Israel. This is the moment when God calls forth this people. This is the beginning of the Jews. This promise is actually why the Jews still exist today and the Babylonians don't. And the Assyrians don't. And the Hittites don't. And the Canaanites don't. You don't have any of those other ancient people. The only people from the ancient world we still have from from that part of the world is the Jews. Because God promised to Abraham, I will turn you into a great nation, the Jewish people, Israel, a nation that will last forever. So the Jewish people, that's the second part of the promise. Land, seed, third part of the promise, blessing. Blessing. 
God will bless Abraham, and you've got actually a five-fold blessing here, five statements of blessing. The first is God says, I will bless you. Now, that's the general one, the summary one. What does it mean when, when God says that he is going to bless you? Well, to bless someone signifies the bestowal of all good and protection from all evil. It's a really good thing to be blessed by God. When God said he's going to bless you, it means he's going to give you everything good and protect you from everything evil. So that's where God begins, summary statement. Then he says, I will make your name great. That's a promise that God is going to make Abraham famous. He's going to bring honor and and respect to Abraham in the eyes of the world. He's going to make Abraham a great name. Now, this is ironic. You might think back to last week. Why did those guys at Babel want to build a city and a tower? What was their purpose? To make a name for themselves. They wanted to make a name for themselves through their awesome power and great intellect. But how many of them do we know today? None of them. We don't know any of their names. All we know is that they were fools. But Abraham, he didn't try to make a name for himself. He trusted God to make a name for him. And here we are, 4,000 years later, on the other side of the planet, and we all know that dude's name. There's a very important lesson there. Try to make a name for yourself, you will be a forgotten fool. Let God make a name for you, and you will be remembered for eternity. Abraham is proof of that. The fact that you know that guy's name is proof. You let God make a name for you, and it lasts. That's the second part of the promise of blessing. Third part of this blessing, God says, Abraham, you shall be a blessing. This is actually a command. God says to Abraham, be a blessing. In other words, God is challenging Abraham to be an example of blessing to the world. Abraham was to show the world, this is what a blessed life looks like. If you want to enjoy blessing, you have to know the one true God. Abraham was to be a paradigm of the blessed life to the rest of the world. That's the third part of the promise of blessing. Fourth part, God says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. That is a promise of victory. Abraham, you will be undefeatable, and that proves true. No one can touch the guy from this point on. Finally, the fifth part of the promise, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Right there at the end of verse three, that's the line in your Bible to underline. That's the one you want to circle. You may not realize it, but that little promise, that short line, is actually the foundation for the entire rest of the Bible. That little line right there is the basis of everything good in your life. That's actually everything for us. That, that little line, Paul picks that up in Galatians 3. He quotes that short little line. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. God preached the gospel ahead of time to Abraham and this promise, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How has that been fulfilled? Through Abraham's ultimate descendant. The ultimate Jew, who is that? Jesus. Descendant of Abraham who showed up on earth 2,000 years after Abraham's life. He fulfilled that promise and as a result of Jesus' death on the cross, all of us, whom I'm assuming most of us here are not Jews, we are all blessed because of that promise back in Genesis 12. All the way back in Genesis 12, God promised this family will be the basis for everything good, grace, love, eternal life to all the world. 
So when I was a kid, I grew up in a a Christian home. We used to read the Bible all the time, uh, both Old Testament and New Testament. And as a kid, I came to the conclusion, well, I assume from reading the Bible that God must just really like Jewish people more than the rest of us, right? Because like the whole Old Testament is written about them. Most of the Bible is about the Jews. It feels like God doesn't get around to caring about any of us Gentiles, that's everyone else on the planet, until you get to the New Testament. But then I studied Abraham, and I realized, no, that's not true at all. The Old Testament is all about God's love for the world. Because remember what happened at Babel. When all of us were together, when there were no races, what did we do? We united in sin. And so God divided the human race up and then chose one family through whom to save all families. That's why he chose Abraham. That's why he chose the Jews. He does not prefer Jewish people. He chose the Jews so that they could be the source of salvation for all of us. So this promise is what all of the rest of the Bible is built upon. The Gospels, the life of Jesus, everything good in your life comes from the last line of verse 3. One of the most important statements you will find anywhere in the Bible. So God makes outrageous promises to Abraham. Incredibly gracious promises of land, seed, and blessing. Those promises are so significant, you will see them all the way through the book of Genesis. You will actually see land, seed, and blessing, those promises, all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. God just laid the foundation for the rest of your Bible. Okay, so land, seed, and blessing. God gives an incredibly gracious promise to this family. Now, so far in this story, the only one acting has been God. God divided, God chose, God commanded, God promised. God is the initiator of Abraham's story. He gets everything rolling, but now it's time for Abraham to respond. Now it's time for Abraham to act. And so how does Abraham respond to this command and promise from God? Well, in short, he responds with growing faith, growing faith. When the command first comes, how does Abraham do? Well, actually not so well. We know from other passages of scripture that that God's command actually came when Abraham lived in Ur. But when you meet Abraham in chapter 11, where does he live? He lives in a city called Haran, which is exactly halfway between Ur and Canaan. Abraham's journey came in two parts. First leg of his journey, he left Ur and made it halfway. He didn't leave his family behind. He brought his father with him. He brought his family with him, and he settled in Haran. Haran was easy, you see, because Haran was just like Ur. It was the same culture, same group of people. They worshiped the same God. The city of Haran was, was dedicated to the worship of the moon God. So Abraham was only willing to obey God when it was easy at first. He just goes halfway He's not willing to completely obey yet. And then he settles down in Haran, and we don't actually know how much time passed. We know it was many years that he lived in Haran, unwilling to take the hard step of obedience. Fortunately, God doesn't give up on him. The command and the promise remain in effect. And after some unknown number of years in Haran, Abraham finally grows to the point where he's willing to obey. Let's pick up the story, chapter 12, verse 4. After some amount of time in Haran, Abram went forth 
as the Lord had commanded him, and Lot went with him. Now Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abraham took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abraham passed through the land as far as the side of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. On chapter 12, Abraham does much better. Finally, he has grown to the point where he's willing to obey and he leaves Haran. He leaves his family, he leaves his father, he leaves his idolatrous past, and he heads to the promised land. And along the way, as he's journeying along the way, he builds altars. Did you notice that? Everywhere Abraham goes, he builds an altar. That's actually the only piece of architecture that Abraham will leave behind. These altars throughout the land of Canaan dedicated to the one true God. An altar is a place where you worship God. Now, now Canaan was an idolatrous land, just like Babylonia. It was full of idols, and yet all the way through the land, Abraham builds these altars because why? Because he wants to introduce people to the one true God. Abraham is growing in faith. He is beginning to be what God wanted him to be, a blessing to the world. Showing people what it looks like to walk with God. That's why the book of Hebrews picks this up and says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. That's not the first part of Abraham's journey. He wasn't walking in faith, but then he grows. He begins to grow in faith and take steps of obedience as he enters into the land. Now, that's where we're going to end our story for this morning. We'll pick it up in a couple weeks when we come together and finish chapter 12. This is as far as we're going to go for now. Abraham still has a long ways to go. You'll see that next time. His journey of faith is not done by any means, but he's beginning to grow. And so at this point in the story, as we hit pause on the story, let's ask ourselves, what lessons do we learn from Abraham? What do we learn from him, especially when it applies to, to what we should do when we feel unworthy and unqualified? of God's love, unqualified to serve God? What lessons should we learn from Abraham's experience? Well, the first lesson that Abraham wants to teach us is that God chooses the unworthy. God chooses the unworthy. Now, how do I know that? Because I know a little bit more about Ur than I have told you. In Ur of the Chaldeans, everyone worshiped idols. Everyone, including Abraham. Joshua makes it explicit in chapter 24, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Abraham and his family were idolaters. They did not know the one true God. They worshiped the moon God. Actually, we know that because of the names of their wives, Sarai. She's named after the the wife of the moon god. Milcah, she's named after the daughter of the moon god. The whole family was steeped in idolatry. That's the kind of family God chooses to save and to use. But wait, you might ask, the ancient world was a really wicked place, really evil place. So, So maybe God didn't have any better options to pick. 
Maybe Abraham was just the, the least evil of all evil options, and so God picked him. Well, no, because we meet another guy in chapter 14. Look at chapter 14 for just a moment. Chapter 14, starting in verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, that is Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. We don't know a lot about Melchizedek. He jumps into the story and then jumps right back out. This is all we have. He, he was the king of the city that would become Jerusalem. He was a, a priest of God most high. He worships God. Actually, Abraham looks up to him and tithes to him. He is Abraham's priest, his intermediary between God and Abraham. We don't know a lot about Melchizedek. What we do know tells us that God had a better option. If God wanted to choose someone worthy, he would have just chosen Melchizedek because Melchizedek was worthy. He was the logical choice to receive these promises that the whole rest of the Bible is built upon. But God doesn't make the logical choice. He doesn't choose the worthy guy. He chooses the unworthy man. He chooses Abraham. Why? Why would he choose an unworthy man when he had such a a better option available? Why? Because that's what God always does. Our God loves to choose unworthy people. He loves to choose unworthy people to save, to call, to transform, and to use. Do you want proof? Well, you got Abraham. You also got Moses. Moses was a murderer. He murdered an Egyptian and then he ran away to the desert because he was a coward. And he lived in the desert for 40 years and he couldn't speak well. And when God showed up, he was incredibly afraid and did everything he could to get away from God. And yet that was the man that God chose and used to set Israel free from their slavery in Egypt. You got Abraham, you got Moses. You also got a guy named Paul. Because before Paul became the apostle, you know of, Paul was a murderer. He persecuted the church. He arrested Christians and had them executed. His explicit goal in life was to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And yet that's who God chose to save and to use to reach the world for Jesus Christ. God loves to choose those who are unworthy. That's actually God's plan for for everything in life. He loves to choose those who are unworthy. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. Salvation, your relationship with God, eternal life, forgiveness, the love of God, they are not things you earn. If you're here this morning and you have been trying to earn God's approval, you want to be worthy of his love, you want to work for it, I got bad news, you can't. You can never get there, but I also have good news. You don't have to try any longer because it's not about your worthiness. The love of God isn't something you earn. It is a free gift. That's what grace is, getting something good you are not worthy of. 
That's how salvation works. God saves those who are not worthy. It's not about our worthiness. It's about Jesus' worthiness. He was the one worthy human being who has ever walked the face of this earth. He went to the cross and died for our sins and rose from the dead so that God could offer eternal life to unworthy people like us as an absolutely free gift. That's the good news of the gospel. Eternal life isn't something you earn. It's a free gift you receive in faith. So what do you do with those feelings of unworthiness? What do you do when you feel unqualified? Well, when you feel unworthy of the love of God, here's what you remind yourself. Good, because you are unworthy of the love of God. And so am I, and so is everyone else in this room. And that's okay, because it's not about our worthiness. It's about the grace of God. When you feel unworthy, encourage yourself. Remember, so was Abraham, so was Moses, so was Paul, so was every single person ever chosen, saved, or used by God. We are all unworthy. And there's great hope in that because God loves to call, save, and use those who are unworthy, just like you, just like me. So that's the first lesson we take from Abraham. The second The counterpoint to this lesson, God chooses the unworthy so he can make them worthy. God chooses the unworthy so he can make them worthy. Turn to Genesis 18. Men, if you'll head back to prepare communion, let's look at Genesis 18, verse 19. In Genesis 18, verse 19, God tells us why he chose Abraham. Why did he choose this unworthy man to receive these incredibly gracious promises? Look at verse 19. This is another one to underline. It's actually the most important verse in all of the Abraham story. 18, 19. This is God speaking. God says, for I have chosen him, that is Abraham, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he's spoken about him. Why did God choose Abraham? Why did God bless Abraham? Why did God give Abraham all this great stuff so Abe could be happy? No, so that Abe could become a teacher of righteousness, a model to the world of what an obedient life looks like, what a a just life looks like, what a righteous life looks like. God chose Abraham so he could transform Abraham into a man who would show the world the way of righteousness. God chooses unworthy people, but he does not leave us in our unworthiness. He chooses us so that he can transform us, change us into men and women who are worthy of being called followers of Jesus Christ. So when you think about your life, why did God save you? A lot of Christians answer, well, God saved me so I could not go to hell and instead could go to heaven. Well, that's true. God saved you. You get to go to heaven. Great. But that's not nearly enough for God. Getting you to heaven isn't enough for God. He wants more than that. He wants to transform you in this life. He wants to change you now and make you into a person who is worthy of being called a follower of Jesus Christ. You see that theme throughout the Bible. Here's three quick examples. Paul, Ephesians 4. 
I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Why did God save you? Not just to get you to heaven, but to transform you into a person who is worthy of being called a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what God is doing in your life right now and at all times. He is challenging you, teaching you, convicting you, disciplining you, instructing you to make you more like Jesus, to make you more worthy of the title follower of Jesus Christ. So when you feel unworthy, when you feel unqualified, the first thing you do is you encourage yourself. You are just like Paul, Moses, Abraham, and all the rest of us. But as soon as you have encouraged yourself, you turn to God in prayer. And you ask God, please make me worthy. God, take my life. I surrender it to you. Take it and transform me into someone who is worthy of being called a follower of Jesus Christ. Take me and mold me and make me into the image of your son. That's what your life is about. You are unworthy. So am I. So is everyone else here. We've been chosen, called, and loved by God out of grace, not out of worthiness. But now that we are called and chosen and loved, God is at work in your life to transform you. So pray, ask him to do whatever it takes to grow you into a person who is worthy of being called a follower of Jesus Christ. Life is ultimately all about Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate descendant of Abraham. 2,000 years after Abraham lived, his descendant, Jesus, came to earth, died for our sins, rose from the dead so that we could be blessed, so that we could be saved and called and transformed and used. Jesus and his death on the cross is what we get to celebrate this morning in communion. Communion is a moment when we as a family gather together to remember what the ultimate descendant of Abraham, Jesus, did for us on the cross. Does the men come forward? What I would ask you to do is, as the elements pass, take this time and simply give thanks. Take this time and go before God and thank him that he is a God of grace, that your salvation wasn't something you had to try to earn, but that it's something that he freely gave to you because Jesus earned it on the cross. Let's go before the Lord in thanks. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup also after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you have blessed us. That through the death and resurrection of Jesus, your son, you have forgiven us and given us eternal life. You have healed us and made us new. We thank you that you have blessed us and now we ask you, Lord, to make us a blessing to others. 
We pray, Lord, that you would grab hold of, of our entire lives, that everything would be laid out before you and that you would do whatever it takes to transform us into people worthy of being called followers of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would work in our lives to, to make us lights for Jesus, that, that like Abraham, we would walk out of here in bold faith, building altars to, to introduce people to, to you, to the one true God. We pray, Father, please make us into witnesses for Jesus. We pray that he would be pleased with our lives, that, that he would be honored and glorified, that we would make his name great. In his name we pray and give thanks. Amen. Now if you'll stand, let's respond and worship.